Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Yeah, your your finger puppets can recreate that really cool scene from the movie Big with Tom Hanks. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> it shots the <like> <laughs> So hey everybody, welcome to episode 123 of the More Than Just Code podcast. I'm Tim Mitra and I am in Toronto, Ontario, and I'm joined once again by Aaron Bay in Whitby, Ontario. Hey there. I'm also joined by Jaime Lopez Jr. in Seattle, Washington. How's it going? As well, we have Mark Rubin down in San Jose, California. Hello. All right, so you had some follow-up there, Aaron? Do you want to surprise uh, us with it? Okay, I'll surprise you with it. This is your follow-up though, Tim, because you've got oh. a few CarPlay receivers here listed. Sure. Uh, after, yeah. after I went on at some length last week bloviating about my CarPlay experience, the poor one that I had, I was a little concerned because I didn't hear back from anyone until today. So people listening oh, to go. last week's show today decided to contact me via the Twitter machine. And to let me know that uh, at turns, uh, disagree and agree with me, depending on who you are. Adam Armstrong, hmm. at Adam Armstrong on Twitter, uh, has has purchased a Pioneer head unit for his Jeep Wrangler Unlimited Sport Edition. <laughs> he told me that, so you know, I'm just passing it along. Okay. So sure, yeah. uh, he says it's actually a great experience. It starts up uh, about 10 to 15 seconds to connect, uh, appears to work every time with his iPhone 7 Plus. I didn't ask if it was a jet black one, but, uh, you know, he's probably shouting at the iPhone right now saying it's jet black. Anyway, his works fine. It works great. Has no trouble at all. And so there, there's a good, good case report for the pioneer units, which were the first ones to come out to support CarPlay, as I recall, uh, also quite expensive, um, seven, $800 sort of things. Uh, but then I also heard from Lou Piper, uh, that's L E W. Piper at Lou Piper on Twitter, who has a similar experience also with a third party unit, uh, a Kenwood in his case. And if you'd like the model number, it's DNX 89 3S. Love how consumer electronics companies name their products. He said that my story was very familiar. So it isn't all third party head units that are good to go, 
but it seems that at least from Adam's case, the pioneers are the ones to look at. Um, and mm. in fact, it may be a hardware issue that I'm dealing with. Although even, even the last week, uh, I've been paying more attention to this since I complained about it. And, um, there's absolutely some problems. And I think that they are software related because there are times when I turn the car on and it connects within those 10 to 15 seconds that Adam reports is regular. So, uh, it can happen, which suggests that it's not necessarily a hardware fault. Yeah. So I, I, as I mentioned last week, I was, had a rental car and it turned out to be the same model year as yours. Mm-hmm. It was a, a, it was a golf though, instead of Jetta. Um, and I, so I, you, you're right. I looked into what it should have been, what would have been the ashtray in the old days was a USB port. So I plugged in there and instantly CarPlay kicked up. And so I got to play around with CarPlay, uh, to and from, uh, the location of Mississauga that I was driving to. And it was, it was interesting. I mean, uh, very sort of from an iOS experience, very rustic in sort of, in some ways, you know, like, mm, yeah. uh, I was surprised that mm. I was surprised that I couldn't listen to the radio and, 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 you know, uh, flip back and forth between the navigation app. Cause what seemed to me, the thing is that depending, I guess it depends on how the apps are written, but audio apps normally play in the background because they use that background, um, uh, mode for music or for audio background. Um, but I found that, you know, if you switch back and forth, Overcast would want it to be front and center if I wanted to wa- listen to Overcast. Um, but like, you know, Waze, which was the navigation app I was using, was still able to, to talk to me. And fortunately, I do I do have a an app on my phone called um, Tune Radio or something like that. Yes. And and I'll put a link in the show notes for that. But that was a, that would allow me to listen to like the ro- local radio while using the Waze app, right? But I found it was it kind of odd, like just sort of it was a little clunky as far as iOS experiences go, I found like just, I mean, I mean, maybe that's part of what we're talking about with, or what you were talking about with the sort of, it seems like it's sort of from the past, you know, in terms of uh, iOS revisions kind of thing. Well, it is greatly simplified over yeah. the standard iOS experience that you have. Uh, and I think a lot of that is just owing to the fact that it's a car interface and you really don't want to be splashy. You just want it to be utilitarian and get out of the way because you should really be focusing on your driving. So that's true. Yeah. <laughs> I think there's definitely an element of that to it. Um, and so, yeah, I'm, I, I hear what you're saying though. Like it definitely doesn't look like something that's, uh, of, of this year we'll say, but, um, it's definitely the hardware and the, the sort of slow performance and the bugginess around it that kind of gets to me. Um, oh. if, if, if that were fine and if it worked every time, like it does for Adam Armstrong, uh, I don't think I'd have any complaints about it. So as Aaron was saying, I did put a couple of notes in the show notes here, um, just some follow up items, like a couple of days after we aired the show. Um, so I found a, p- a new piece from a Sony, um, uh, uh, AVAX100 car receiver that Sony's come out with that does both Android, Apple CarPlay and, and uh, Android Auto, audio, sorry, Android Auto. But um, I found another link too. And, and, you know, I was curious enough now to sort of say, okay, so what are the prices for aftermarket ones and who does make them? And I found this uh, carplaylife.com site that lists a whole uh, slew of aftermarket ones. And as Aaron said, the, the lion's share, like I'd say 20 or 30 models are made by Pioneer and then Kenwood and JBC and Alpine make a couple of them, you know, so, so definitely uh, Pioneer has been, had been in the game for a long time and has a lot of different options for the same, you know, same features. Right. So, and like you said, they're all sort of in that roughly five to 600, $700 range. Right. If yeah. people are curious. Yeah. And I'm, I'm, you know, <laughs> although I've already got the thing built in and I, I don't know if I even could install a third party unit at this point. 
maybe you can, maybe you can't, but I would be extremely reluctant to do so. Uh, I, you know, I've had terrible experiences in my life with aftermarket stereos in my car. <laughs> mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. When I lived in Toronto back in the year 2000, I uh, had my car broken into several times <laughs> nice, and had yeah, my head unit stolen. Uh, it's It makes your car a real magnet, I think, having stuff like that built in. So I'm uh, very anxious about putting something like that in my car in the first place. Yeah, well, I think that the the, the, like the car manufacturers have all gone now to having a secret code. Like I know that in when I bought my car, it, you know, the, the dealer had written the the code to unlock the radio. Of course, it's in the glove compartment if anybody wants to go and steal my stereo. But <laughs> <laughs> but uh, conveniently there for you. Um, I wouldn't want to ruin your experience. But uh, um, yeah, and, and it's interesting because I, I have a, tw- a two thousand four car or we just bought a new used car and it's it has a wide enough deck to to take one of these things and also like they come with like the ones i looked at come with rear view cameras and all that kind of stuff because i you know I, I wasn't really sure about that when i first drove this this rental car it's the second golf i've rented in the last couple of months and um it's kind of nice having a the rear facing camera so when you're backing yeah. up you can sort of see if there's something oh, I dig that. behind you totally yeah, yeah. so yeah mm-hmm Plus, the, plus the, you know, the possibility of having navigation and you can add in, you know, satellite radio and all that kind of stuff. Just like all the mod cons for car stereos. Have any, by any chance, have you guys used any um, iOS 9 devices with CarPlay? Because no. uh, just kind of shot out of the dark here, but like um, I updated to iOS 10.2, I want to say is the one that most recently came out. And I noticed a considerable improvement in um, the Bluetooth performance connecting to my wireless headphones. Uh, it's still not as good as it was in iOS 9, where previously, um, you know, I would just have my phone, let's say, like on the counter. I'd put on the headphones, I'd turn them on, and they would just connect within a couple seconds. Um, now it kind of seems like I have to wake and unlock the phone. And then I'll see it um, wow. connect, and then I'll see the new little headphone icon, which apparently means like we are legitimately connected for audio purposes, uh, which is a huge improvement over um, prior with iOS 10.0 and 10.1, where I had to go into the settings Bluetooth and then like manually connect to that sucker. I don't use Bluetooth at all uh, when I connect because because of the CarPlay, I just uh, I have to use a Lightning cable, right? And so. Don't even use uh, that. Yeah. Uh, Same thing okay. with my other car, my other non-CarPlay car. Uh, it doesn't even have Bluetooth, so um, I use an auxiliary cable. Yeah, I have lots of Bluetooth devices. Like I have the, you know, the little um, talkback unit that fits on your um, your visor, so you can talk to people on the phone and that kind of stuff. And I, I'm I I don't think I have problems with uh, connecting Bluetooth. But Mark, you've had some issues with yeah. Bluetooth, I had right? I had a, a lot of problems with my car when it when iOS 10 first came out connecting with Bluetooth after iOS 9 used to work perfectly. Uh, and uh, I think I've mentioned before, it's it's been getting consistently better with each new version of iOS 10. I haven't checked or wasn't paying attention, actually, when I was in the car uh, after updating to the latest version. So I don't know whether it's any better, but I could say it, it, for sure it wasn't noticeably worse for what that's worth because uh, I didn't notice any difference. Um, but I'll I'll pay attention over the next few days and see what happens. Hopefully it's better. Anyway, that's our follow-up on CarPlay. So, Jaime, take it away on your follow-up item. Yeah. Um, so we talked about um, protocol-oriented programming isn't uh, a silver bullet. Um, and it, it kind of reminded me of, of a few different sort of 
somewhat interrelated topics, right? Um, or concepts. Uh, Yagni, which is uh, you aren't going to need it. Um, architecture astronauts and second system effect. Um, so Yagni being like you aren't going to need it is sort of like the opposite of dry, the don't repeat yourself sort of thing, where it's like, whoa, 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 like don't, you don't need to factor this out into this hugely generic, completely reusable sort of thing. Like this is the only screen that has this thing, right? Or this is the only spot in the app that has this. And, and you don't even know uh, anything about the future. Is your company still going to be around? Are you going to have this feature requirement and so forth? Um, architecture astronauts was something that uh, Joel Spolsky came up with uh, many moons ago. And it's kind of idea very similar where like you have folks that sort of like see these patterns and things, right? It's kind of what we naturally do as, as both humans and also kind of what we do in our, in our day-to-day jobs as developers um, where they say, well, this is really just a subset of that. And that is just a subset of that. And eventually you have so many layers of abstraction and factory, factory, factory type things going on that you're, you know, you can't breathe anymore because you've gone into the, the stratosphere. You've left the atmosphere. Mm. And then second system effect kind of comes into play, um, I, I think, somewhat with Swift in that second system effect is where, um, as an architect, your second system is the one where you're going to go in and be like, oh, my gosh, we didn't have time for this, that, and the other. And, and I didn't get a chance to explore this. And, wow, this could have been better than it was in my first architecture you come up with a new one and like, you're just throwing everything in there and it's terrible, right? This is something that came out of, uh, I think the mythical man month book, if I'm not mistaken. So, uh, we'll have links in the show notes, but that's sort of what came to my mind, right? That like, um, Swift was like kind of like an opportunity to sort of undo the demons of the past, whatever they might be. So I think it kind of suffers a bit from the second system effect where Objective-C did some things like rather, rather nicely and kind of hard to improve upon, but, but now you have a chance to improve upon them. Right. And, and one of those tools that you improve upon with is, uh, being protocol oriented. So like we saw everything, like the pendulum swung the other way where like everything was protocol oriented and just made it an unholy mess in some cases. And, and that brings me to like the last sort of bit for this follow-up is that, um, in the meantime, I found an article by, uh, Ted Benedictson, that sort of covers the, like, how to avoid protocol orientation obsessed programming. So in it, he kind of goes through, like, some of the issues that you end up with. And he takes a real simple example of uh, of a milkshake uh, and using that as a struct and, and going forth and, like, oh, well, this like, has all these protocols that it conforms to. And, like, suddenly there's, like, no code at all other than just, like, this definition and statement of protocol conformances. Hmm. Um, but is that really easier? he goes through some of the trade-offs well like if this is all you need to do we used to have something called uh object composition that would let you reuse uh capabilities without like you know hard coding it in several different places um but you can also consider as like well if you have uh multiple entities that all need to have the same behavior um let's say like like my perfect example that i love is um table views, right? The table view cells in particular, their reuse identifier. That's the sort of thing I'd like having as a protocol because it works really nicely. It's like, look, I, I always make the identifier the same as the class name. So just having that be part of a protocol conformance for like a reusable, you know, cell is even um, a UI collection view cells can conform to this if you wanted it to. That's kind of nice, right? It's not like a huge cognitive burden to understand what's happening there. 
Same thing with, uh, let's say, like you wanted all views of some certain type to have um, some sort of effect on them, like uh, they could have bottom borders that are 10 pixels and you know black colored and, and so forth. So you can just say, like, hey, I am a UI view and I conform to, you know, bottom border um, drawable or something. I don't know. I come up with a better name off the top of my head. And and then that works, right? Like that kind of helps because the cognitive burden is is okay because you've said I'm I'm willing to add this extra bits of like stuff that is not here in the class and I'm not going on some sort of treasure hunt looking around for everything. Let's say read that article. It was pretty good. I think it takes a pretty fair approach on things. Yeah, I read the article. I, I liked it. I got a chuckle out of some of the the protocols that he came up with, like the sip by sip consumable protocol and the boy to yard transporter protocol. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Read the article. You'll find out what I'm talking about. <laughs> mm-hmm. Already in my paper. This is uh fascinating. And uh, I think there are a lot of criticisms that you could make of Swift. Um, and I think if you could, if you could cast yourself back to the heady days of 2014 say, before Swift existed, but at the time when we knew that Objective-C um, maybe was a little long in the tooth and maybe, um, you know, when John Syracuse was talking about Copeland 2020 or 2010 or whatever the heck it was at the time, this need for a new language. At some point, Apple had to fold and come out with a new language for programming in iOS. The problems that we were looking for it to solve uh, aren't necessarily the ones that Swift ended up solving. And I think some of the, what's the word I'm looking for? <laughs> um, some of the, uh, the uh, splashback, I guess, against uh, protocol-oriented programming uh, represents some of that because I'm not sure that it's necessarily solving every problem that we ever had. Uh, when we have, you know, object-oriented programming and inheritance, uh, you know, and subclassing, you know, these very basic uh, principles that we've been using for many years and successfully we look at uh, protocol-oriented programming and see an alternative to that technique uh, that that helps in certain circumstances, but, you know, is, isn't a panacea. It doesn't solve every problem. Um, and that's what we've been talking about the last couple of weeks. Um, but what problems remain unsolved that uh, that Swift hasn't, hasn't fixed? And um, I guess when I, I'm thinking about things like uh, asynchronous programming, for example, um, I'm not sure that Swift solves that, that makes it, makes it easier in a substantive way. And, and that's something that's dramatically more important now in an age of everything being networked. Are there, are there other problems that you think of that Swift hasn't solved? Or am I just a lone voice in the woods right now, do you think? I think I'd agree with um, having something, I don't know if it would be maybe on top of GCD, um, sort of a first-class citizen um, or maybe it's like on top of NS operation, but in either case, it's something yeah. either uh, akin to the way that um, C sharp handles async with its async and await sort of model, or um, some sort of futures or promises based model. I think mm-hmm. I would like to see that be baked into the language because, as it is, you see like everything out there somewhere tries to to, to use that. Right? There's like ten different. Um, third-party projects on GitHub that offer you promises or futures or, you know, chainables. They, they name them something different. Uh, I think Promise Kit we've mentioned here before. Yeah, yeah, we have. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, and um, I also think uh, we saw a little bit of, of traction going towards the uh, protocol buffers 
as being sort of a a nicer way to deal with things because JSON can be a little bit messy due to the, the very strict typing system that Swift has. So yeah. I think those two things would be really nice and, and or making um, JSON just easier to use and, and feel less foreign to the Swift way of doing things because hmm. otherwise there's like hugely nice things about Swift. I mean, one, it's, it's a less verbose language, so I definitely find it a lot more pleasant to read because it's, it doesn't like fill up my eyeballs. Just like looking at, uh, at at code, I can sort of get what it's saying immediately. And um, you know, enums that are backable by like real values are hugely great because I don't have these magic strings sitting somewhere saying like, well, if it was this thing, how do I turn this enum into uh, some sort of like string, most likely like string key or something. So switch statements and, and so forth get like super nice and easy. That is true. Those are great features. Uh, no need for header files, I think, is is awesome. Um, having like a REPL is pretty powerful. I, mean, I think that's one of the most powerful things about it. Mm -hmm. um, and has helped helped uh, Apple spread the word of Swift as something that anybody can learn with Swift play playgrounds, right? So, um, mm -hmm. you know, it's immensely powerful. But uh, I, I still feel like it it isn't solving all of the problems. I think one of the things that I, you know, looking back on it in that introduction at WWDC, uh, was the emphasis on safety. You know, uh, I remember seeing that slide and thinking to myself, who was asking for that? <laughs> Cause <laughs> you know, um, you know, and, and don't get me wrong. I agree that Swift is perfectly safe and it's wonderful that, that, <laughs> Let me let me dial that one back. Swift is not perfectly safe, but I agree that it's important that it is safe. And I, you know, once you adjust to the uh, notion of programming in Swift and dealing with that type safety and all of its various safety features, uh, they're great to have. Um, but it didn't seem like something that that we've been necessarily needing so much. And uh, you know, I I'm not sure that it it overall is making our programs safer. There's still plenty of ways to die in a fire uh, when I'm programming sure. in yeah. iOS. So uh, it's just one of those things that, you know, I'm not sure how much of a win it is. When I was expecting Apple to create a new language, I was, my, my thinking was more around, you know, what specific problems can they solve in iOS and Mac development um, that Objective-C does not currently handle? And, you know, I'm not really seeing it. Yeah, I think there's a there's a lot to be said for the different styles of programming. Whether I mean, and in any one program, I'm sure you can make a case for for using classes and structs and doing you know protocol oriented as well as just regular old inheritance type models, right? Because depending on what you're dealing with, um, you know, you still need to learn both. You still need to use both in in the world. Um, but it's kind of funny, like what you were saying about the marketing thing. I often think about the the car big car manufacturers in the 50s and 60s who would add a feature to a car and then convince you that's what you wanted. And sometimes it kind of feels that that we're being, you know, indoctrinated with these these kind of things, just based on what you were just saying about that. Yeah, yeah. But by the same token, though, we were saying, by the way, this is just it's also one year since Swift went open source. I believe they were just at the anniversary, right? Yeah. But um, the uh, so you know we all we all can take some responsibility for where Swift is going, right? And and take some of the blame as well. Um, that was the last point I was going to make. Uh, oh, it's gone. 
It's gone. Oh, it was about the Strux. Uh, that's okay. Oh no, yeah, it was. We were we were complaining like last year that that about this time that, you know, it's all, well all well and good to have this new Swift language, but all of the frameworks and everything were still in Objective C. Ah, get out of right? my mind! I was just about to say that. Yeah, yeah. exactly. So that's, and that's what I'm saying. So now we're moving towards these Struct things, Struct models in terms of network calls. Um, you know, and that's maybe that's part of the the retooling of of the entire environment, right? No, more to the point though is that when we had Objective C, the frameworks that they worked with, that Objective C works with, they were developed in lockstep. You know, like it was presented to us as a package. Oh, yeah. Whereas now with Swift, um, it's sort of like a half solution. It's a bastard programming solution, right? Because yeah. it it has to embrace both worlds. This you know, new structy value oriented programming with protocols, um, passed by value. Yeah. Yeah. And this, this object or oriented reality that, you know, it's just not really at its best, let's say, you know, that's why I, I, I think we've said this before. It's like, we are in the midst of a transition, but this transition is taking years and we haven't seen anything yeah. of it yet. You know, mm. there are no swift frameworks. Right, UIKit contains nothing in Swift, as far as I know. I mean, they may be re-implementing it in Swift. Who knows? But as far as I know, UIKit is still an Objective C framework. Yeah, I think I also think that UIKit is sort of an animal into itself because you know, same with Wave storyboards and and um, and uh, uh, XIB's work. I mean, because I mean, and I know this because I've just been teaching it to try and explain to people why how things get initialized when the storyboard gets unpacked and blah blah blah. Right. Mm-hmm. So I think it has its own sort of uh, way of getting into the machine code, if you want. If I can be so loose with that term, in terms of what the you know the device needs to work with or the compiler needs to work with. Right. These are things beyond my understanding of, of, of programming in general in terms of how stuff gets translated from, you know, lines of code into something, you know, bits and bytes that uh, a device can display on the screen, you know? I love bits and bytes. <laughs> I like the little shreddies. What are we, what are we talking about now? <laughs> That's true, yeah. yeah. So, Aaron, you made a pretty good point, I think, about the about the safety being... seems like one of the, the, the major guiding forces behind the whole language, Right. Uh, and it's it's interesting that they went that way when you consider that the rest of the world is sort of, for better or worse, going in a different direction. Uh, look at how JavaScript, in some sense, has taken over the 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 world of the web, right? I mean, it's you now have Node and 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 you know the whole full stack movement, uh, just where everything is is in JavaScript everywhere. And JavaScript is completely the opposite in terms of safety. Not a safe it's language. Not safe at all. Uh, and Python, you know, Python has some safety built into it, but not a whole lot. You know, you can you can uh, take a variable and it can be a string on one line, and the next next line it's a it's an array, and the next line it's a it's a integer, right? Without without batting sure. an eye. Yeah. Uh, so so I, I do kind of wonder why they went that way. Uh, the, there's a couple of reasons I can think of. One is uh, if you have a lot of junior inexperienced programmers, then the safety helps uh, because people who don't necessarily know know how to look at some code and, and figure out exactly what's going on uh, just from the context, having the safety keeps them from, from making big mistakes. Uh, it also goes along with the, the new emphasis on testing, I think. I feel like Swift has, and actually protocol-oriented programming as well, uh, has a big emphasis on testing uh, and TDD even as being a big, big part of the development process, much, much, much more so than, than Objective-C. Uh, 
Hmm. And uh, it, it def- the safety definitely helps there as well because there's fewer subtle things that could go wrong uh, that a test might not actually catch if, if the code is completely safe. So I do wonder if, if one of the goals is to make Swift more of a language that you can have uh, a large distributed team, say, uh, with with a lot of uh, turnover or a lot of inexperienced coders being able to to look at the to, well to work on the code with a minimal amount of a learning curve and a minimal chance of, of doing harm once they get in there. And if if that was kind of one of the the motivating factors for doing it this way, yeah, I don't know. Like, yeah, you know, I would I I would love to see a biography of you know, the process of creating Swift and what the thinking was that went into it. I don't know. Yeah. yeah just... the, the fact that it was stealth for at least a couple of years probably didn't help the situation, right? It was, no. it was a few people, you know, to, meaning this in the, not necessarily in the, in a negative sense, but in sort of an echo chamber, uh, talking to themselves about what should be in this language. Uh, yeah. that, that really was the, the initial conception of the language. And, you know, making it open source is hopefully counteract a, a lot of that, but but uh, you know, there's there's only so much you can do once the initial frameworks, not not frameworks, but the initial conception of the language is is in place. Right, right. The foundation is yeah. is there and solidified in some yeah. respects. Foundation yeah. with a lowercase f, not with an uppercase f. <laughs> <laughs> like framework with a lowercase f. I'm really interested in this uh, topic, obviously. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, and Jaime, those those links to Yagni and Architecture Astronauts uh, in particular, uh, I see that so much. I see that so much when I'm uh, reading other people's code. That, yeah, uh, there's definitely really the, like, out. like oh, I can like genericize this, and, and if I can just write this perfect hundred lines of code, it will like write itself, and and then basically just does this app for me. I'm like, okay, good luck with that. <laughs> uh, yeah. That seems like a really difficult problem. Um, I don't think you're going to need some of that stuff. And it becomes very difficult to read. And then maintain, of course. Mm-hmm. 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 Yep. I'm glad there's a name for it. I've not, not seen that before. Yagni. Hey, let's continue with RFU, Mark. <laughs> yeah, so we talked a little bit last week about the issue that uh, people were having with the, with the calendar app on the Mac or on the iPhone, uh, where third parties will send them some spam invitations uh, and it ends up in your calendar and the only way to dismiss it, to delete it is by sending a decline notice to the original sender which of course tells the spammer that you're actually out there and exist and puts you on the list of, of uh, people to spam even more which is which is definitely not desired. Uh, and there, there was a workaround that, that somebody came up with to to fix it, but uh, you know, it wasn't wasn't uh, something we should have to do as users. And it looks like Apple has acknowledged that, and they are working on a fix. Uh, in fact, the fix is apparently I haven't checked this, but apparently it is. It has been rolled out on the web version, the iCloud version of of Calendar, uh, where there's now a report as junk button that you can click, and it will remove it without sending anything back to the spammer, which is great. Uh, and this will be coming out in quote future versions of of OS ten and, and iOS. So it's good that cool. they've recognized the problem and are working on a fix. Yeah, for sure. Array for Apple. 
Hey, right. so um, also on the topic of yay Apple, we got AirPods. Uh-huh. Hello, AirPods are shipping. <laughs> are they shipping now? They're shipping. Well, oh, I mean, yeah, they're, they're yeah. available for purchase. Let me let me rephrase that. Ah, uh, okay. They're not cool. shipping at this very moment, but uh, when they were uh, launched yesterday on Tuesday, the thirteenth, for those listening at home in their cars, don't know why. Get out of your car. Go in your living room. You know, li- listen. They're driving at home. Yeah, well, they shouldn't. Anyway, um, on the 13th, Apple announced that uh, people could now buy the AirPods. And so uh, those of you who raced to your nearest web browser or Apple Store app saw that they would be shipped to you in time for Christmas. Uh, My purchase, which I made immediately, uh, says that it will be arriving at my house on the 21st of December, seven days from today, Mm -hmm. and uh, in time for the holidays, uh, which is very exciting. Um. So I bought two more pairs. Everybody in this house is getting some. It's super exciting. Shh. Don't tell anyone. Um, <laughs> Do they listen to the show? Please. Do you listen to the show and they're in the background while you're like doing laundry or dishes or something? Always with my headphones on, Jaime. I mean, that's always with my headphones on. It's, it's Your cool. earpods. Earpods. They will be. It will be. Pods, airpods. Um, but also note that if you're listening to this uh, recording now and it's Saturday or Sunday or, or even Wednesday, given the feedback I got today, uh, they are long since back ordered now and you, there's no way you're getting them in time for Christmas. So Fools. Uh, Fools. I think the last I heard is that they were four weeks out. Let's look, really you know. that quickly? Hmm. Oh yeah, like uh, within within an hour, I think they they had become back ordered. Uh, so now I'm just I'm bringing up the buy page, and I can tell you on the U.S. page it is six weeks, not four weeks, as as a record. I saw something on the Twitter machine earlier today that said uh, something about extra batteries or something, or some sort of incent- some sort of incentive that Apple was sweetening the pot with anyway, i don't know what you mean i don't know what i mean either so there's oh, a mix well, two of us just another day <laughs> yeah exactly oh. uh-huh no surprise there all right so um hi man do you want to kick off the kickstarter oh i see what you did part there. of the show Thank you. <laughs> sure um so this is really quick this is a blog post by the kickstarter engineering team uh talking about how they are or actually actually have open source their Android and iOS apps. So it's, it's there for you to see. They talk about the little bit of the history for the projects and how they got started and sort of the why they did this. They gave credit to um, Artsy for sort of like, you know, inspiring them to do this sort of thing and building stuff out in the open. So great for them and, and, and Artsy. Um, I haven't looked too deeply into the code, but I did find some things kind of interesting. Uh, one, they're using a uh, functional reactive programming pattern. So that might also be another one of those things that uh, either goes into Swift or into CocoTouch itself. I'm not sure, but it's definitely one of those things that it'd be nice to have it as a baked-in option. In this case, that's what they're using. Um, specifically, they seem to be using the functional reactive bits of um, signals and consumers within the context of their view models. So I think we've talked before about view models kind of is what you want it to be. Uh, you'll get very, very many definitions as to where the boundary lies. Here, they're using it specifically for mapping their input to output signals, which, when I looked at the code, made me think, wow, this looks a whole lot more like um, less of a view model in, in the way that I've traditionally thought of them as like, oh, this is a nice way to to transform things, right? The model has 
something as a raw number and the view model says, hey, I can turn that into a displayable string. In this case, they're using them more as like a, a very like brain driving pattern, very similar to more like like a coordinator. So I think taking a look at the the links they have there, their their code base so it might be worth a look because I thought that was kind of interesting. Um, and they're also uh, the, the, perhaps the most interesting thing to me was how they're using Swift playgrounds as a way to iteratively, you know, design and develop their uh, their UI. So they talk specifically how they're not using storyboards. I don't think they talk too deeply about why, but they say or at least they claim that they're getting a lot of the benefits because they can use the REPL as a way to stand up their, their UI. And I could see some of their, their playground examples where it says, hey, we'll show this as, you know, like what you would see on an iPhone 4 using the playgrounds. Um, I think it's the live view instrumentation that you, you can hook into. And I thought that was pretty cool because I hadn't really considered using the REPL for, for that sort of thing. Like, like not whole UI, like pieces of UI, like, oh, this button that renders itself kind of differently and, or this view that, you know, generates a little graph or something, but not like a whole, you know, view controller type UI. So again, worth a look. Cool. This is amazing. Like what? I guess it's not part of their core product, right? Like Kickstarter is a service and this is a native app for that service, right? And so there's no... Mm -hmm. No downside, as far as I can tell, for them to open source their app. Yeah, it's not really like a competitive advantage for them, right? If, if Indiegogo takes this and creates their own, um, you know, swap out the assets and now you've got Indiegogo for Android and iOS, like, okay, well, that doesn't really change the fundamental service that you're, you're interacting with. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, there's, there's no killer feature of the app that's going to cause people to... Uh, make more Kickstarter projects, right? So, right. Yeah, you know what I'm saying? Yeah, I do. Mm -hmm. yeah, that makes sense. So, makes sense, and and to emulate Artsy in the same way because they're very much a similar situation as Kickstarter. If you think about it from a fundamental perspective, right? Like uh, Artsy is, um, uh, they they uh, deal with art auctions, so the, their app is is just a way to. Uh, facilitate those so you know there's nothing proprietary or, or new or different about it in, from an app perspective app isn't the business it's not like like um i don't know periscope say you know which has some nifty video thing figured out you open source that and that's right. the whole business you know right exactly it's interesting too that this uh they got a picture of the team um, I don't know if this is worth talking about, but there's eight members of the what they call the Native Squad, <laughs> this group within um, Kickstarter that that does their software. Uh, eight members, and five of them are women. What? Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, that is that is pretty unusual. So, so kudos to them for, no for that. And, and if you read the the blog post, they didn't have an Android app, and some back end engineer said, "Hey, I'm kind of interested in doing that," and apparently they got the go ahead. So that sounds like a pretty cool environment. No kidding. Yeah, sounds like nice. a, it could be a really great place to work. So, and that's another great thing about open sourcing, right? Is that it's it's a big flashing sign to prospective developers that this is a great place to work. Mm. Where are they based? Uh, Kickstarter. They look to be in um, northern climes from this picture, anyway. Definitely not in San Francisco. I actually don't know. Uh, Kickstarter, I want to say, was like in New York, if I'm not mistaken, but I'd have to look it up. 
Got a New York I don't know. From, from the picture, it could certainly be San Francisco in the summer. With the leaves falling <laughs> off the trees? Shut up. <laughs> I'm, I'm not kidding. Come on. Yeah, the tree is okay. I, I was yeah. just looking at the jackets. Oh, no. Uh, looks like jackets. Brooklyn, New York. Brooklyn, now yeah, that, that I sense. buy. <laughs> yeah, it says New York City on their, on their we're hiring page, yeah. Okay. Lower East Side. That's good. You know, and Artsy is also in New York City. Hmm, Artsy and open source projects. Well, obviously, mm. uh, I think the developers probably hang out sometimes at meetups and things, probably get together. So. Mm. That said, they're looking like they're hiring an iOS engineer in Vancouver and one an Android engineer as well. They have an iOS Vancouver on. Although, I don't, uh, how, how can they get an iOS engineer in Vancouver? Never mind. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> That's okay. our long-running joke. Okay. Yeah. All right. So, cool story, uh, bro. Jaime, okay, Jaime, keep going. Google so home get us. Google. Take us home. <laughs> yeah. Um, so this sort of came together at the same time. So I have a Google Home and have had one for oh. the past uh, maybe a little over a week, a week and a half maybe at the most. Uh, it's sort of an early Christmas present. Um, Is Alexa mad and- at you? Did she get all the stuff? I was going to say. I wonder, I wonder if Alexa and, and, and Google Home can actually have a conversation. Oh, you haven't seen that video? Uh, maybe on, I'll see Tim. if I can find it. Put in the show notes. People yeah. people did that with the um, with the calendar information and, and trolled the one where, like, uh, you have the, the Echo. I can't remember which one to start with. Let's say they started with the Echo that says, like, okay, you know, tell me what's on my calendar tonight. And then it reads the calendar information, which has the next part that tells Google Home to tell me what's in the morning. And then that reads it back, and it just goes in this, this loop. You know, they'll just keep waking each other up. Cool. Some kind of never-ending nightmare. All right, Jaime, keep going. <laughs> yeah, so um, so I've been using the home as, as my own sort of, like, personal, you know, product sort of thing, uh, sort of comparing and contrasting it with the, with the Echo. And I think the short of it is that um, they're very comparable. Uh, it, it just depends on whether you're more interested in the breadth a functionality that the Echo provides with its integration to just so many different ecosystems or the depth of integration that the Google Home provides, assuming you have um, a lot of your lifestyle in the in the Google ecosystem. Uh, I would have a hard time right now deciding, like, which of these would make it on the raft, you know, when Seattle goes under the water sort of thing, which one am I bringing <laughs> with me? Um, don't but bring in Canada. Case- yeah, don't bother. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, also, uh, related to that is just this week, Google came out with its actions on Google, which they had talked about at I.O. Um, that allows you to integrate with not only the Google Home, but other bits of the Google Assistant, which is available, um, one, in their Allo messaging app for iOS and Android, as well as natively um, built into the Google Pixel phone. Um, and when you look at the, the docs, which I think are, you know, they're pretty nice. They sort of give you the, the overview of, of how this whole thing works and they give you um some like design tips and and even some more like practical examples of how to use um the conversational aspects of their their api and and when i look at the code um it's really kind of similar to the way that you set things up with the um alexa skills kit and if you look at the um we'll have this in the show notes they give the uh eliza example Remember Eliza? It was sort of the uh, yep. proto AI conversational thing. You could say, you know, oh, I'm not feeling that good. Oh, tell me why you're not feeling that good today. And yeah, and, the armchair psychologist. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And if you look at the code, it's it's 
pretty simple code. I mean, granted, they, they wrapped this, um, you know, sort of like third-party library that is the Eliza brains itself. But if you look at how the um, actions, what is it, actions on, I'm going to call it the actions on Google SDK because I forget what exactly what it's called, uh, interacts with that. It's very, very similar to the way you see with the Alexa skills kit and the way you see things work with, um, what do you call it, uh, the Siri kit where you're using this intense system that is sort of marshalling all of the data back and forth, right? So it, it, it figures out like, oh, you're asking for weather and the weather today, and you're asking for it in Celsius sort of thing, and then maps those different things. Um, and, and one of the videos that Google has here for their uh, API.ai uh, service that they, I think they acquired them fairly recently, they show you how you can sort of visually build that thing. It, um, they, they, it's like a 15 minute video they show that you could like build a, like a recipe app where it uh, very simply, you give it an utterance, like, you know, I want something that is hot. And it says, oh, okay, hot. Well, hot maps to a temperature and temperature maps to these other different recipes and then move on to the next thing. Okay, well, prompt the user to say, oh, well, what kind of proteins do you have? I have beef or I have lamb, I have chicken and, and so on and so forth. Um, and also kind of similar, uh, right? I think today as of this recording, uh, Microsoft is throwing its hat into the ring, which they're going to open up their Cortana skills kit, which uh, I've not seen the, the docs because they haven't uh, released them as far as I know, but they describe right here in the announcement that you can reuse a lot of what you've built for your Alexa skills kit systems, right? So it implies to me that it's also going to be an intense-based system. And just like the Alexa skills kit, just like um, actions on Google, it's almost certainly going to be Node.js-based. So I think that's kind of interesting that a lot of this stuff is, is becoming Node.js, and it kind of like flies right into the face of what we were talking about of like, how a lot of the industry is moving toward these ridiculously unsafe uh, programming languages <laughs> as the future. Yeah. Google don't care. Microsoft Internet don't care. They don't give a crap. Okay. <laughs> Jaime, sell me. You got to sell me on this now because, you know, you know, I'm in Canada, right? And so we don't have any of this stuff. Um, and also, I'm having a very difficult time imagining myself sitting in my living room and shouting at some piece of hardware that's maybe you know, five meters away, some generic request. What are you using it for? What value is it providing to you? What job is it doing for you? Talk to me, sure. sell me. Sure. Uh, so granted, some of these will be somewhat difficult because as you mentioned, you are in Canada, so I don't know what services are or are not available. Well, let's pretend that um, I'm in the States. Right. So that makes it easier. So <laughs> Get when, me I out compared, here. when I compared the, the home no, no, and the here. Echo... <laughs> no, in the when I compared the Echo to the Home, um, they end up being the same in a huge number of areas. Um, I'll try to go through this list super quickly. Uh, alarms, timers, calculator, calendar, sort of. Um, sort of the delightful stuff like jokes, facts, trivia type. You know, it shows really well on, on commercials but isn't, like, you know, that useful. Uh, dictionary, uh, smart home integration. Music, uh, daily briefing or news, shopping list, traffic, sort of, uh, translation, sort of, and uh, weather. Those are the areas that are all very, very, very similar. 
um, it's kind of like, you know, the first step towards living that dream. If you grew up enjoying Star Trek, the next generation, where they would just be randomly asking the computer a fact question, or they would say, Hey, I want you to generate something for me. And it would perform this whole series of operations for them. That's kind of where it sits in there, right? Like I, I do have my Apple watch with me, um, almost all the time, even like when I'm home, um, it's unfortunately not quite as smart as I would like it to be. It's very good at some things. It, it's definitely good at giving me, you know, timers and alarms and, 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 and notifications, which, uh, notifications in particular is something that these assistants, uh, currently don't do. They're not proactive. They're very reactive. So that is a huge difference. Right. Um, and, uh, the phone, my iPhone, uh, when I'm in the house, isn't necessarily around with me, right? We talked about last time how I'm definitely loving the idea of having, uh, a Bluetooth system that can go further. So if it's, you know, my phone is in like the bedroom on the top floor and I'm in the garage doing something, I can still reliably get information, right? So I can't always rely on my phone being with me at home, less of a problem when I'm out and about, which is an area that these assistants don't really integrate that well with, right? The, um, uh, Alexa is hypothetically available on other devices. There's, uh, smart watches and a couple other, uh, I think headphones that I just saw today that, that do give you some sort of that capability. Um, Google's assistant is uh, still available to you if you're using, uh, the right app Allo on, on iOS, but it's, these are not as seamlessly integrated into your, your life. Right. So if you focus on the sort of like in home or maybe office, I could see the right kind of office environment, having it probably not an open plan office. Cause it would be a nightmare hearing yeah. like 20 echoes or 20 Google homes activating down a, a cubicle row. Um, but if you have like more of like a private office or, or shared areas, that might be kind of nice. So that's one of the things that they're, they're similar at, right? So I, I mentioned before the, the breadth versus the depth information. So, um, I've had an echo much longer. I've had it for I don't know, whenever the dot came out. So probably six months to a year at most. Um, one of the things it does pretty well that the Google Home currently, as of this recording, doesn't do at all is uh, integration with um, sports update stuff. So on the Home, I'd have to specifically ask for my teams uh, with the Echo. I can just t ask it, you know, give me the sports update, and it gives me all the sports teams that I'm interested in. That's pretty useful because I probably like feeding the dog or something while I'm getting that information or reminding myself when are all these games coming up. Uh, the local news uh, Cairo seven news in Seattle is available through the echo because of like how open it has been as an ecosystem. Um, and, and Google's has just come out and is barely opening up a little bit. Uh, also, uh, again, sports fans. So Yahoo fantasy football is on the echo. So that's, that's great. I can ask it like how great or as it is this season, how terrible I'm doing. Um, and also Twitter integration. So I can just sort of be doing something else. Like, I don't know. I could be, you know, washing dishes or something and ask it for like, you know, tell me about the trending tweets in Seattle. That would probably tell me something like, oh, uh, everybody's talking about the snow apocalypse that's coming up sort of thing. And, and that could be kind of nice. As far as the depth goes for, for the Google Home, the things that I've, I've definitely found pretty interesting is how much it integrates with things like uh, Google's finance products, right? So I can ask it like pretty seamlessly, oh, um, how'd the S&P 500 do today? 
uh, as opposed to the Echo, where I'd have to have a specific skill enabled to do that. It's, it's a lot more seamless with Google's integration. Uh, flights is also kind of nice too, right? So since uh, you're probably using something like Gmail to, to get your flight information from Expedia or Travelocity, this can, like Google already knows, right? That's how they add that stuff seamlessly to your Google Calendar. And the Google Home takes advantage of that, where you can say, hey, you know, how's my flight doing? And it's like, oh, flight one, two, three, four, five is um, delayed by 15 minutes, but you should leave relatively soon because, you know, traffic is, is bad. Um, the integration with the Chromecast, which I have on my TV, is kind of nice. I can just ask it, you know, play the latest episode of Game Grumps on the TV, and it will do that. It will fire up the, the Chromecast, it'll switch to the YouTube app, and then start playing that, that video seamlessly. And if somebody comes to the door, it can tell it to pause TV, go answer the door, get like a package from Amazon Prime, or maybe a pizza was being delivered. And then as I'm coming back in and setting things up, I'm just like, oh, go ahead and resume TV. And it does that. Like, it's blowing my mind how well it does that, right? That's, that's something that the Echo notably does not do. Uh, and the other sort of fun thing that I found uh, related to this podcast is that it handles podcasts ridiculously well. So just for giggles, I said, oh, play the latest episode of the More Than Just Code podcast. And by golly, it did. Uh, despite the fact that we are not in, uh, so correct me if I'm wrong, Tim, we are not in Google Play uh, Music's podcast directory, right? We're still self-hosted no. and, and listed in iTunes. So they must have crawled the, the iTunes directory for that. And Maybe. even cooler, it like actually remembers. So I tried it again. It's like, oh, play the More Than Just Code podcast. And it remembered exactly how far I'd gotten into it. So I could distinguish between, you know, continue where I left off or play me the latest one. So I thought that was pretty nice. It sounds to me like what you're saying is like the Google product is uh, much more generalized in how it works. Uh, whereas the Amazon one seems to be based around skills that you have to think of to install and activate and then remember the particular phrasing required to to use them. Is that accurate? Yeah, I think in terms of the conversation interaction, Google leans much more towards the direction of what Apple is trying to do with um, its Siri kit, Siri kit where they um, take many, many different phrases and then do the hard natural language processing for you and turn that into something that is uh, more concretely actionable by a computer. As opposed to Amazon's where you're kind of learning um, like a vocabulary, right? You know, ask Twitter what the trending tweets are. Uh, ask Pizza Hut to deliver me, uh, you know, my favorite pepperoni pizza. That sort of thing. So it's, I think on the Echo side, it's a lot more um, open to integration because you don't have this like huge number of, of setup steps that you'll you'll see in the actions on Google, um, and is much more open. So it's a much simpler but broader sort of available system. Uh, I do think longer term, something more like what Apple and Google are doing is where you would want to go with this. And from what I've seen at, um, we didn't talk about this last time at all. Or, or two episodes ago, we, we talked about Amazon's reInvent conference, but they also announced their uh, Lex system, which does this natural language processing, uh, very similar to what the API.ai system does for uh, Google's Home. I don't know if that answers the question or not. The question was, sell me on it. 
Um, <laughs> <laughs> oh, that, that was, that was, that that was the original pitch. question. Yeah, that was the original question. <laughs> that was your okay, elevator so, pitch. So I don't know if you uh, if you like any of those things. Um, if you'd like the computer interaction as as sort of displayed on Star Trek: The Next Generation, um, I think it'll be a good fit. Uh, if that's not for you, then eh, it's just not for you. How often do you use it? Uh, every day for sure. So um, what's a typical thing? So waking up in the morning, I'm getting ready, uh, you know, open the open the windows, open the, the blinds, feeding the dog sort of stuff. That's a really good time for me to get my sports update and also to get my news update and ask um, more specific things like what do I have on my calendar today just to remind me uh, while the sleepiness is, is leaving my brain. So every morning for sure. Um, now that I've been working at home, I'll have it uh, set reminders uh, for, or more like timers for me. Like, oh, I need to, you know, remember to, to stop at around this time. Um, and maybe I don't know what that specific time is. Just more like, oh, I want to be working on this for an hour. Then I need to take a break to, you know, relax my eyes and stretch my legs sort of thing. So I can ask either one of these assistants, you know, set a timer for one hour and it'll do so. Um, the Echoes is kind of a nicer sounding timer. Um, the home kind of has the nicety that I can set individual named timers. So if you're doing like a recipe type thing, like, oh, this timer is for the stuff that's baking. This timer is for the prep work. This timer is for the um, sort of after letting everything rest sort of time. So that that's kind of nice too. Okay. You do use it then, and now you've got two of them. Yeah, yeah, and I would absolutely buy one from uh, from Apple if one was available <laughs> to sort of compare and contrast. Uh, I don't know that I would buy the Cortana one, not not from like a technical standpoint, but just I'm not as deeply involved with that ecosystem, right? I'm not I'm not a Windows user. I don't use Microsoft products uh, like Outlook, Live. You know, I don't have an Xbox, uh, the Xbox One sort of thing. Um, so that one would not work as well for me, whereas, um, I'm heavily invested in the Apple ecosystem, right? I have all sorts of Apple products. It would be nice to have that seamlessly work, uh, with that. Um, pretty heavily invested in the Google ecosystem, uh, using a lot of their services and reasonably invested in the Amazon ecosystem, uh, as a prime member using, you know, uh, Amazon video, which I think I've mentioned is a, is a huge reason why I don't own an Apple TV, because it's kind of hard to, to give up that essentially free uh, streaming television and movies that I could get with, with Prime. Um, and as Amazon increases its, its Amazon Prime stuff to like, oh, they're going to use drone deliveries and, oh, you want to go to an actual store? Guess what? You don't actually have to like pay anybody. You just scan your phone on the way in and our magic will figure out exactly what you bought. Mm -hmm. uh, as they do more and more of that, I can see myself getting more and more deeply ingrained into that ecosystem as well. So unfortunately, there's no no real good answer right now uh, for me. So I'd, I almost see the the like holy trinity of um, assistance in the future still being kind of necessary. I consider them my senior staff, like Jean Luc <laughs> Picard <laughs> in his ready room. Oh my good right. lord, <laughs> Earl, Earl Grey hot. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. Even after all you said there, Jaime, I, I, I just, I'm having difficulty imagining it as a mainstream product that 
lots of people would buy in, in such a way that it would spur Apple to create such a thing. Well, is it getting to be more like those sci-fi movies, Jaime? Like in, you know, like just about every modern movie these days that talks about the near future has people walking into the room and going, you know, raise their light level and turn on the music and play some soft jazz and, and that kind of stuff happens. Is that kind of the sort of utility you get out of this stuff or is that sort of is that something you see in the near future? So me personally, I don't have um any of the smart home integration unless you're including um, the Chromecast as part of that integration, right? Like I don't have the smart switches. I don't have uh, the music player that's hooked up. Um, I can turn on and, and, and do video and, and hypothetically music if I'm listening to like Vivo channel on, on YouTube uh, with like the home. Uh, but I could definitely see how that it would be kind of nice, right? Um, where you might, you might come home from from work or or you might have to deal with like oh let's have party mode what kind of party mode oh like this is kind of a you know this is more like an hors d'oeuvres party oh okay well, let's play some classical music let's play some baroque music some bach and, and mozart type stuff and then let's set the the lights dim and you know maybe turn on the the artificial candles sort of thing as opposed to like you know uh we're gonna be all messed up in the morning kind of party mode it like you know turns on the subwoofers uh turns on you know the uh, from the ceiling you have the little ball that that has the laser beams shooting out of it kind of thing like i, I could see that sort of happening you're killing right? it <laughs> not as like a necessity <laughs> sort of thing but just sort of like like a nicety sort of things right uh, automating a whole lot more of these things where you know if i'm if i'm already using my phone there's no reason to use assistance because it's uh, generally much easier just you know type into the search box like you know i need an uber from here to there or i'm looking for airline flights from seattle to boston or something uh the assistance work much better when you're sort of involved with something else or it's like oh man i don't want to go find my dang phone where, where did i even leave it did i leave it on the couch did i leave it on the you know on the upstairs uh counter or or where is it? it's like no just ask it the, the the computer is everywhere sort of concept I think where these where these do better. Wow! All right, I'm a lot of questions. <laughs> <laughs> Holy cow! Yeah, it'd be interesting to see where these go because um, you know we've we've talked about numbers and perception, but uh, I think a fairly reasonable number is that Amazon has probably sold somewhere around five million of these things. Mm. Um, sort of basing that on on sort of like what the industry believes. And also I saw what App Annie believes for the Amazon Alexa app, which you, you need to uh, download to use the Echo. And they have something like 5 million downloads. So I just kind of say roughly around 5 million of these things have been sold. And uh, the tech press considers that an enormous success. So much so that it seemed like, oh, well, the Google Home is, look how late it is. And, you know, you know Alexa has over 3,000 skills that have been integrated and, and Google has only what it's done, which is a much tinier set. Like, can they catch up? I'm like, are you kidding me? This is like, we haven't even taken the first step out the door, right? Like, we're still on the threshold of this new era. Um, contrasting that with our discussions we had uh, the other time about like, oh, well, you know, Apple Watch, mm, how's, how's this going? How's a smartwatch and wearables categories? Like, for the love of heaven, like, we're pretty sure Apple has sold well north of 10 million of these darn watches mm-hmm. by now, right? Like, I think we can agree that by now they've sold more than 10 million of these things. That's double what you have 
for the Echo, which has been around twice as long. So your mileage may vary with how you believe this news. Right. We're never going to know how many watches Apple sold. <laughs> They're never gonna yeah, I think Apple was really smart by making the um, Apple Watch app part of the operating system itself rather than something you can inspect from, you know, App Annie downloads of the Apple Watch app. So in a post I put last week up on here, it says Apple shipped 1.1 million Apple Watch units in the third quarter, down 3.9 million shipments for last year during the same quarter. So it's a lot of watches. But you're right, we we don't have the total. Right, and and that notably was... (laughs) I think would be the quarter leading up into the series two coming out. So you would expect that it would be lower than it would be um, for the year ago from that point, which would have been uh, just after, or maybe right at the time that the watch debuted itself. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. Interesting. Um, So uh, the next topic on here i just macbook pro battery has been sort of watching this i just put these couple of links on here because i noticed a couple of days ago that uh, um people were saying that apple was going to remove the uh estimates of how long the battery was lasting and uh now they in with the release of 10.2.2 apparently 10, people are reporting on two. it says 10.2.2 here sorry on the it, link well, yeah it's wrong okay. man it's 10 12 you're two. right you're right 10 12 two. yes um so improved battery life, life reports from various people um so seeing as you're the only person in the room with a macbook pro what do you think about the battery what do you what do you think about this issue I, I think there's i think there's something to it um i i have found that i have not really gotten stellar battery life out of this computer uh but i'm always hesitant to complain about it because i know the workload that i'm putting on it is significant sure yeah and i you know because uh when i'm using it unplugged it's xcode and it's compiling like all the time like literally just straight compiling you know think for a bit change something recompile you know um yep. cycle continues so it's it's very difficult for me to be critical of it because you know um you know i'm not just sitting there reading web pages and typing emails and browsing twitter so, but the people who are, you know, uh, they, they do have a very, I would say a lightweight usage profile. And if they are the ones experiencing problems, then, uh, I think that's, uh, that's something that you should take more seriously. So, uh, mm-hmm. I'm willing to agree that there may be something wrong and that it may be software related. Um, when ten twelve two came out yesterday, I think that what it did is I, I, I hope rather that it didn't just remove that time remaining indicator um i hope that it actually is fixing something <laughs> that uh that was causing these uh these particular models to uh to drain more quickly but uh on the whole i would say i'm okay with the idea of there not being a time remaining indicator uh you really do have to take it in the context in which it's intended right it's what it's saying when it says how much time is left is if you are using it exactly as you are at this very moment this is how much time is left Oh, really? Okay, yeah. Well, if you know, you think it through, right? And so yeah, sure. yeah. it makes that makes estimate sense. based on, you know, how many kilowatt hours are still in the battery, and that it knows that. Um, and it knows how much is draining in the last, you know, say, few minutes, who knows, uh, based on the particular usage that's happening right now. So, like, I'm compiling an app in Xcode. So I'm pegging the CPU at 100%. And, um, you know, I'm using, like, 14 gigs of, of RAM. Uh, sure. And so the display is set to this brightness and it can, it can say, you know, with, with that profile, 
you have uh, an hour and 38 minutes left. Sure. Yeah, it's got to put it, it's got to put into human ease. It's got to be something that humans can understand because right. they can't just tell us how many kilowatt hours there are left. But um, and I can say this much about you know laptops. I've had them since the very beginning, and I've never gotten what it says on the tin in terms of performance because I know I'm actually using the device. Right. Uh, I think the estimates are based on like on a very conservative user profile, like you said. Right. So. Um, back in the day when we were working with analog tape, we, we used to have these arbitrary numbers on, on the tape machines that would go back and forth and, and give us a sort of an estimate as to where we were on the on the physical tape. But it was never an accurate measurement. It was just sort of a, 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 a guideline, if you will. Like, you know, like the advertised uh, battery life on my MacBook Air is supposed to be 13 hours, but I have never, ever gotten 13 hours out of it. And I wouldn't expect to, to be honest with you, right? So I don't know why they why Apple even bothers telling people that they'll last this many hours because it's ridiculous. Okay, so... It, that's that's the profile based on a particular usage case that they put out, and you're fine not sure, to expect yeah. that. Uh, the point I was trying to make, though, is that when it says how much time is left, it is based exactly on what you're doing at that moment. Yeah, I've, I've, uh, I've seen yeah. this conversation, uh, not, not this particular conversation, but the, the battery one playing out in Twitter over the last 24 hours, 48 hours. Yeah. And uh, I'm a percentage user so it doesn't impact me <laughs> at all because yeah, I, yeah. I learned i learned long ago i didn't like i was like man this this time remaining thing is not reliable because yeah. i'm using it in, in different capacities if i'm from browsing yeah. the web that's one thing if i'm you know recompiling swift stuff <laughs> in particular <laughs> that, that time doesn't mean anything for uh, yeah, yeah for I, me I, i'm just like you know I just plug my computer in every night when I go to sleep and my phone, and it's all charged up the next morning, and I don't give a shit. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Why yeah. does anyone care about all this stuff? No, spend, I mean, spend your time doing real stuff. You're exactly mm-hmm. right. I mean, the thing about this is that that uh, I'm I, now that I look at mine here, I'm I'm, I'm the same way. I'm percentage as well, right? I am too. Um, and I think even on my on my iPhone, I'm a, uh, yeah percentage, and and. It, I regularly sit on the couch right now because I'm, you know, and and code till two or three in the morning or whatever, and and uh, or one or two in the morning. Who am I kidding? Um, and you know, I, I, I old, get, Tim. gets down to three percent in the morning. <laughs> huh? You you're getting old. It used to be that uh, yeah, I'd look up and it would be midnight my time, so it'd be three three o'clock yeah. your time. Yeah. We'll be chatting, yeah, I know, I know. Yeah. Yeah. But 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 like so so like you know I'm I'm amazed when my when my Mac gets down to like three percent and I you know I'm still going and but then I'm also amazed when I'm working on my computer and it said it's told me like six times already you're running out of juice here and then all of a sudden the screen goes black and the thing shuts down I'm like, <laughs> so I, I, you know yeah. I get caught by that regularly all the time too and I've had my phone down to like one percent and had it last for you know a good ten fifteen minutes before I was able to plug it in right so yeah well I'm sure it's like your gas tank you know even when it's all the way down on zero, you yeah. don't want you're actually running out of gas. So there's actually yeah. a, few more, a few more miles left in there that they're just yeah. not telling you about. My car now it, it starts pestering me with a with a with bells and things saying, "Do you want me to direct you to the nearest gas station?" Mm. Oh wow! Uh, yeah, oh really? Wow! Yeah, for real? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's do some picks. So um, I do have a pick, and uh, this one just came out uh, today or last night. Let's say uh, as of this recording, it's. The Apple support app by Apple. I think this had been sort of seen out in the wild in the New Zealand app store, but has come to at least the U.S. and hopefully other territory app stores. With it, you can you can get support information. Uh, it shows you frequently asked questions or perhaps uh, sort of hot issues that are happening with different devices, especially as we're finding uh, new devices. Uh, you can find like local repair shop uh, locations, uh, which seem to be not 
not only pure Apple stores. I actually found one um, third-party reseller that, that showed up on that list, so that was kind of interesting. And you can chat with, with support reps and schedule like actual you know, Apple Genius time, uh, just like you could you know, from the website, but in a much more convenient app. And the thing that I like is that it shows you your actual devices that you have enabled, like, you know, my iPhone, my iPad, and you know, Mac Mini, MacBook Pro, that sort of stuff. And um, also it gives you the status of your Apple Care, which I realize that some of them are old enough that they're beyond their original Apple Care time limits. So I thought that was kind of neat. Are you using this now, or is this only available in certain markets? Uh, it's at least now available in the U.S. and New Zealand. Okay. I didn't check to see if it was available in, in Canada or, or other bits. But I, I think they I think they were trialing it out in the New Zealand market to kind of see um, how it worked. And, I mean, I've, I've used it, you know, scary air quotes here in terms of, like, poking <laughs> through the app and checking things. I'm like, oh, yeah, it showed all my devices here. Um, but I... Uh, fortunately or unfortunately have not had an actual problem with my device to say, Oh, let me see how good the scheduling system thing works. Yeah. It's interesting. Cause I mean, so many services, I mean, I've been using chat services with, for support from a number of companies for, for many years. I'm surprised that Apple hasn't got around to doing this. I figured they were just so busy. Right. But it, you know, and you know, having dealt with these chat teams, they usually have two or three conversations going at a time because, you know, there's always a sort of you, you enter your your text in and you wait for a response. And um, to be honest with you, I, from getting technical support, I, I love I love the fact of being able to just chat with somebody for a couple of minutes and, you know, see if you can, you know, get a, 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 a some resolution. I was talking to another developer about this today and he was telling me about the rubber duck model where sometimes just even talking about the problem helps you figure it out, you know, to be able to yeah. get the idea of somebody else, right? Yeah, I know that in one respect, having folks come into the store to get help um, is in one way pretty good for Apple because it, it draws foot traffic. It's like, oh, well, well, we're taking a look and probably trying to repair the logic board in your MacBook Pro. Um, have you noticed this new ceramic Series 2 watch? Hey, maybe I'll buy that on the way out. Um, that's not necessarily mm. practical for areas because like, not every area has an Apple store uh, very close by. I've certainly seen enough stories of people are like, Holy smokes, like it was a three hour drive to get to the nearest Apple store to pick up my phone. I'm not going to take the darn thing back if I don't have to. And I think this helps address some of that in addition to probably reducing some of the some of the cost structure for Apple, because it, it is pretty expensive to have people staffed up there. And if they need to have you know extra staff to deal with a huge influx of people for a new product or some sort of new problem that's cropped up, uh, this is a way to help you know reduce those costs. And yeah, honestly, have like a better user experience, right? Like, I don't, I don't want to drive three hours back to the store so they can tell me, "Oh, did you try turning it off and on again?" Like, "Oh man, is that what I've done?" <laughs> All right, <laughs> I guess that's what I should have done. <laughs> yeah, the worst part about the store situation is whenever you want to get support from the store, you have to book an appointment and the future, and you know sometimes you just want to get your problem solved and, and it's a simple chat or an email or something, some sort of in, immediate feedback might be might be better for people in the long run, right? So. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And Apple does already have a list of all. I mean, there's a couple of sites I forgot what they are, like My Apple Devices or something like that. I'll put a link in the show notes when I find out what it is. But you can go there and you can see every device you've ever registered with Apple going back, you know, many many years, right? So, including, and then you can check on the warranty status or that kind of stuff, right? Or if you haven't registered a product that you have currently, you can you can put it in there as well, right? So, mm-hmm. so this is kind of kind of a cool way to do it. Bring it all together. Yeah. Neat. Well, the next one I have is uh, 
I'm going to call this a tip and not a pick, so to speak. Um, short little blog post and a real critical video by um, oh, friend right. of the show, Joe Chaplinski. So in in this case, he's talking about the um, sort of Apple cord problem and, and not from a, hey, this cord is too short. This one, you know, doesn't match up with my USB-A to USB-C sort of thing. No, no, no. This is more like the, how in the world do you get these things to not fray and, and keep you know, your life sane. And I thought this might be a good tip given the time frame that around the time this episode goes out, people will start thinking about uh, holiday travel and uh, mm-hmm. using the little technique, which I've, I've seen described. And, and Joe um, says here that uh, it was a sound engineer, you know, that, that told him, you know, he's, he's a musician, like how to wrap his cords in a way that will keep them from sort of just, you know, tearing or flying apart. And it's a pretty easy sort of, loop and twist thing which uh which i've heard described before and i've even seen some youtube videos but didn't quite get in this case i think it's rather well explained and critically in slow motion shows like what that twist looks like that uh, i used on on I, I just went around the house finding all these cords and it's like making them into these perfect little circles uh and it's gonna be great when i go um visit family because i'll, I'll just have these not getting all tangled up, not getting, you know, torn and, and ripped and, and frayed. And, and here, I'm even just looking at my, my iPhone cable right now that uh, looks pretty snazzy. It's, it's not quite as good as the one that, that comes right out of the box, but uh, it's pretty close. I think that was pretty cool. I, I didn't know this because I've, I've not been involved in the uh, sorry, AV club or musician yeah. type scene. So. Yeah. Yeah, I've been using this technique for. I heard Joe talk about this the other day on on the show, on on um, release notes, and I meant to look at the video. So thanks for putting this up here. But um, and I've been using this technique to wrap up my cables for years because I'm always you know in a backpack traveling around, and you know so I've got a couple of lightning cables, and I've got an iPad, uh, a watch charging cable, and Ethernet cables because yeah, sometimes I still use those. You know, and this is a, I I wasn't sure that this was the way he was talking about doing it, but. Yeah, I've seen people do horrifying things to their cables to try to get them to to stay put, and this is rather easy. You know, you can use little uh, uh, zip, no, not zip ties, but like twist tie type things mm-hmm. if you really want. My, none of my cables are long enough to warrant it. They're nice and short enough where I can just sort of loop them through. You know, you know the the different ends, sort of wrap them around lightly, and it it holds pretty well. I was I was actually quite surprised. It, it feels like magic. Like this is something I should have known after all these years and, and, and was led in on an earth shattering secret. Cool. Yeah. The AV club. I wasn't a member of the AV club either. Surprisingly. That's kind of surprising given that you ended up doing uh, a <laughs> lot know. of stuff ultimately. <laughs> I know. Well, they were the cool kids, right? So the AV club Wait, is the what? cool kids. <laughs> yeah, the AV, in my school, they, well, I was in, I was in art and theater. So they were the cool guys. They got to, you know, roll out the projectors and all that kind of stuff, play with equipment. Right. So, mm-hmm. Yeah, it was it was a, a cliquey sort of thing. Anyway, so Mark, what's your pick? This must be one of those Canada Canada versus U.S. differences, I guess. How's it? No, <laughs> I mean they were they were they were they were so up geeks. is down, left is right, right, had, right is wrong. Projectors and stuff, but yeah, they were they were the geeks definitely for sure. But you know, oh, okay, yeah. I was out doing other. I had other extracurricular activities I was involved in. <laughs> so. Hopefully, ones that made you more cool than the AV Club. Let's say they not, opened not my, they opened my mind up yeah, to other okay. things. Yes. Yeah. 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 Okay, so I actually have two picks today, but they're both kind of small what? ones. What? Yeah, and actually, even sort of a half a tip, kind of. But uh, the first, the first uh, pick is for those of you who are still using your uh, 
headphone uh, to lightning adapters that were provided for you when you got your iPhone 7 or 7 Plus. Uh, that little dongle that, uh, you know, is very easily lost. So this is a Kickstarter campaign. Uh, that's that's actually kind of a clever thing. It's it's called the the uh, dongle dangler. It's kind of a funny name, and and what it is is it's really simple. It's just a, a keychain that has attached to it a uh, half of a uh, of a of a headphone jack, uh, the you know the plug part. So you can just that attaches to your keychain, or it is part of your keychain, and you can take your dongle, your your adapter. And when you're not using it, you just plug it onto this thing, and it's just on your keys. And then when you need it, you pull it off and use it, and then put it back on. Kind of a kind of a cute little thing. Uh, it uh, they're well at least as as of when this is writing, they're promising to have them ready available for Christmas if you order them now. Uh, and uh, for five dollars, you get let's see how many of you get five dollars. You get one of the keychains. For nine dollars, you get two. And there's a there's a whole price range of that. So it's kind of a cute thing. Uh, now, having said all that, you know, it's actually a pretty simple thing. And so my, my tip is, my mini tip is that, you know, it's pretty easy to build one of these yourself, really. I mean, if you, if you have uh, just a little bit of mechanical uh, ability, you can just, you know, take a, or electrical and mechanical, just take a an old headphone connector that you're not using anymore and cut the end off of it and then, and then drill take a hole, the piece yeah. and drill a hole or, or solder it to something that you can put on your keychain. So, so it's, if you if you don't have those skills and you want this thing, then yeah, I think this is a, a great thing. Uh, and uh, you can uh, check the show notes to get all the details for that. Yeah, the, the okay. comments on the on the page are hilarious too, though. Have you read some of them? No, I actually didn't uh, read them. Yeah, the comments. best one is really has it come to this? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, it's uh, you know some people uh, don't know how to do these things, so so it's good for them. Okay. The other pick is just kind of a cute little thing. It's uh, called Touch Bar Piano. Oh, that's cool. From, yeah. yeah, from a company called, I'm not sure how to pronounce this, but it's spelled U-T-S-I-R-E. Uh, and it's exactly what it is. It's just a, a little Mac app that uh, turns your touch bar into a little piano that you can play on right on the on the keyboard. And uh, there's, uh, we'll put the link in the notes. You can check it out and see there's a little video of them doing it uh, of them demoing it and you know it's nothing really fancy it's not you're not going to use this for doing live gigs or anything like that but it's kind of cute it's kind of fun and it's a, a novel use for of the new touch bar mm-hmm. yeah your your finger puppets can recreate that really cool scene from the movie big with tom hanks <laughs> there you go <laughs> <laughs> and it's free by the way oh that's cool yeah nice Okay, that's it. That's my picks. All right. Yeah, no, I like the tip. That's not bad. All right. Well, I guess that's it. Um, so, Aaron, if people want to get a hold of you on the interwebs, where would they find you? At Aaron Bay on Twitter. All right. And uh, Jaime? Also on Twitter as at Dev with the Hair. And Mark, if people want to get in touch with you? Mark R at Smapsoft.com. Okay, and I'm Tim Mitra, and I'm T-I-M-M-I-T-R-A on Twitter, and that's uh, how to get a best way to get a hold of me, and we'll talk to you guys next week. Bye-bye. Bye. Goodbye. You've just experienced the More Than Just Code podcast. If you want to find out more about the show, you can visit the More Than Just Code website at mtjc.fm. There you'll find a summary and show notes of each episode. 
We list links to the items that we talk about on the show, picks for the episode, as well as links to the apps on the App Store. If you like the podcast, please leave a comment on the website and write a review on iTunes. If you're listening on Overcast, go ahead and press the recommend button. It really helps others find out about the show. You can also follow the show on Twitter at mtjc underscore podcast. If you'd like to support the show, you can pledge any amount on patreon.com slash mtjc. Thanks again for listening. Yeah, I'm kind of curious how that uh, ends up because it, it was definitely a bad week for for software, wasn't it? It was um, in no particular order. There was the Touch Bar MacBook Pro battery issue. Um, right. There was uh, WatchOS 3.1.1 doing nasty things to at least the Series 2 devices. I don't think I ever saw it on other really? ones. Yeah. Oh. And um, apparently trying to save a screenshot on the iOS simulator in Xcode 8.2 was causing crashes. Oh, really? Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. But it's interesting, you know, like all this sort of stuff like this, like, I, I mean, the CarPlay thing, when I, when I got to, like, you know, I got in the car the next morning after the show and I looked in, I looked in the glove box or what would have been, like I said, the ashtray thing, right? And, and there was a USB thing and it was hard to reach, to be honest with you. I had to, like, sort of, you know, really get in behind the stick to get in there. But as soon as I plugged it in, the, the, it just kicked on, kicked into our CarPlay and away it went, right? It was enough to make me actually go and look at pricing for a CarPlay uh, heads for my, for my CRV because my wife's in her car all the time, right? And, and that's something she could to- totally use, right? Hmm. You know, and and you know, with satellite radio and stuff like that, or with with the app on the on the phone that gets the radio stations. What else do you need, right? So, mm-hmm. you know, because it's all on the inter- internet now, right? You know, and it's it's uh, like even ways like you know that thing that Aaron was talking about last week, where the heads up display, um, and you could wave your hand in front of it to to get to your next message. Well, I, <laughs> I fired up Waze the other day. I must have updated it last week, and it said, "Hey, do you want to wave your hand in front of the phone and have it?" You know, <laughs> And I'm thinking, yeah, great. It's going to use my keychain to do, or not my keychain. It's going to use my uh, my camera to do that clearly, right? Because how else is it going to sense when I'm waving my hand, you know? Mm-hmm. So, but it's 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 interesting how all this sort of you know uh, Internet of Things, if you call if I can call it that, you know, are are starting to make our lives easier and easier, right? So, yeah, but but giving up some control, right? Like, <laughs> yeah, Mark Mark's next car won't even like ask him. It'll just like reroute. Yeah, find, like the, <laughs> right. the nearest gas yeah. station can get to on the route and be like, "What the hell? Why did we end up here?" Yeah, no, it'll 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 be driving them over to the to the gas station. But actually, I was about to say that. The so, yeah. so interesting. Today, uh, Uber started testing their right. yeah. driverless Ubers in 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 the Bay Area. Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Uh, yeah. And of course, instantly, the state government told them to stop <laughs> cease and desist right away. So really? they can't do it anymore. Yeah, yeah. They did it for one day, and then they were told to stop. Right, uh, oh, because driver, a driverless cars like no driverless, sitting in, like yeah, nobody sitting yeah. in the seat. Oh, well, no, I think there's there's probably still a person there for these tests, right? But yeah. but he's not driving; he's right. just sitting there, like the Google driverless cars. Uh, you yeah. you still have to sit there, and there's a steering wheel just in case. But right. but it's doing everything. You're the driver's not doing anything. Yeah, but, but you're uh, busy. You're busy reading your text and and being distracted right, right, anyway, right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so so today, a, a cab of all people, right? Uh, 
filmed a one of the driverless Uber cars running a red light. So yeah. it's kind of a big scandal. Yeah. Oh, really? Yeah. 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 Well, yeah, because it didn't stop. Like, I, it didn't I've stop seen that video. Right. And there's like a pedestrian like halfway across the street, and he was yeah, like yeah. in no real danger because he he saw it coming. Right, um, right. But you could imagine a scenario where he he didn't. Right. 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 Um, it's funny we were talking about that at lunch today. Just just I mean, because that's the thing is like like I guess the the one argument against them is that can it make a decision between killing an an elderly pedestrian or a, a young kid? Right. Like, will a car be able to make that decision? And and right. if it does hit the woman, who's responsible? The software programmer who wrote the program? Yeah, yeah. You know, maybe he didn't, you know, didn't use a protocol properly and he used a class instead of a struct or something. Or yeah. or it was a, you know, there was a, a number that had to be set of what is the relative weight of one versus the other. And it's just the right. number. And someone decided what that number is. You right, know, is, right. it, is, it, is it worth, you know, killing one person to save four people's lives or save six people's lives. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So it's what's, what's that number? Children versus a cop. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yep. Yep. Huh. Yep. Yeah. Yep. I mean, and that's just it. I mean, the reality of in that same scenario, one of those people is going to die if it's a person driving. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah. 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 Hi, I'm Daniel founder of pretty litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.